This is God's word. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us, devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit, cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I'm the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. This is where we read from God's word. Jeremiah was the representative sufferer, pointing us ahead to the chief substitutionary sufferer to come later. Everything Jeremiah and Jerusalem suffered here in our passage and in history was a direct result of the people's own sins. That's what's unique and must be kept in mind with regard to the suffering and the lament. It's treatment for their sins. It points us again ahead to Jesus, doesn't it? With one important difference. Everything that innocent Jesus suffered resulted from the sins of others. With that in mind, we come to our main point. The New Testament church is a godly suffering community like personified Jerusalem that keeps returning to the Lord our portion. How? Three sections here, discovering and confessing how far we've wandered from God, verses 40 to 47. Point two, grieving and repenting with rivers of tears, 48 to 54. And third, lastly, pleading for and hoping in God's rescue and protection, 55 to 66. There are two causes for weeping. You know, we call Jeremiah the weeping prophet, and now he has all Jerusalem weeping with him. But there's two causes. First, Jeremiah and Jerusalem weep for their own sins and return to God in repentance and faith, as we'll see as we study. And second, Jeremiah and Jerusalem weep for their suffering under enemies. And that's where the passage turns towards the end. These both, again, point us to Jesus, weeping over sins and weeping over enemies. And Jesus wept over the sins of Jerusalem, that they would not return to him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've 
long to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, and you would not. Weeping over the sins of his people, Jerusalem. And later, he saved his people from their enemies. Enemies of their own flesh, enemies of sin, enemies of death and hell and the devil. So they both point us again to Jesus, both causes for suffering here. So the church is redeemed by Christ and has become that godly suffering community similar to Weeping Jeremiah and Weeping Jerusalem. We, we the church, are, as we'll study and get to, considered as garbage from the viewpoint of the world. We're actually considered as garbage when we look at our sinful selves before God. Our enemies are against us still, but God is for us and he's all we need. So let's, let's jump into our first point, discovering and confessing how far we wandered from God. We spent a little more time on verse 40 on purpose set up and then the rest of the passage will go faster. Verse 40 shows a change from the start of chapter 1. Chapter started, if you flip back or remember verse 1, me and my. Verse 1 reads, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. It's singular, it's I, it's just the person Jeremiah by himself, he's the man. I and me and my. But now if you look back to verse 40, it has changed over to us and our the change from singular to plural, and I'm not just giving a grammar lesson, is highly significant. It's a change from individual to community. It's not just Jeremiah any longer. He is leading Jerusalem as a community to return to God together. So suffering Jeremiah is now including the suffering community and leading them back to God, but it's an interesting shift. Look carefully at verse 40. So in our new section, the prophet Jeremiah now calls on the community to join him in the first step of returning to God, which is to examine and test their ways. Let us examine and test, test and examine our ways, verse 40. And here, Jeremiah uses a common metaphor of ways, uh, pathways. We might say the word lifestyle. It represents the life journey, the whole of life. It's waxing philosophical for a moment. Across the teaching of wisdom literature, such as Proverbs, there's only two ways, good and bad. The good way, of course, is godly, wise, straight path, doing what God says, trusting in him, obeying him. And the bad way is that ungodly, foolish, and crooked path. So the good way is the way of faith that leads to life, and the bad way is the way that leads to death. And that's what Jeremiah has in mind when he says, examine our ways. But there's a difference here for Jeremiah and how he uses it from the other wisdom literature, such as Proverbs I've just been describing. Notice that in Proverbs, so often when you see the ways presented to us in wisdom literature, people are called to make a choice, one or the other, at the start of their journey. As if you're walking through the early part of your life, you get it to a fork in the road, And you need to decide, do I choose left or right? Do I choose good or bad? But note what's different here in verse 40. Something significant and different. What's unique and what's important to notice is the transition in verse 40 is that the community is being called upon by Jeremiah to come to terms with the way that they had previously chosen to go, that they are pretty far down that path, past the fork in the road by now, and to realize with where they stand how far that choice had taken them from their Lord. You see how this is in verse 40? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. God is telling us through Jeremiah that suffering people 
must realize what is important is to open our lives before God in repentance and faith, even in the middle of suffering, in the middle of life, even later in life. It fits with what we know from our reformers, that repentance is a daily activity for the Christian. It's not just when you're young. It's not just when you launch. It's not just when you are converted or when you join a church. Repentance is for all of life for God's people. The covenant is holy, and so therefore God's people are called to constantly come back to Lamentations 3.40 and other places in the Bible that ask us to take stock of our lives and say to us, test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. And it's a community event. We do this together. For Jeremiah in verse 40, to call for a return to the Lord implied they had previously taken a wrong pathway, there's only two, and had moved away from the Lord because of it. So to answer this then and to lead them forward, we move on to verse 41. And he calls for them to join him in an attitude of prayer and even a posture of prayer as he wrote verse 41, let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. Here Jeremiah is in repentance calling for the community to join him in that heart and posture of repentance, lifting hearts and hands to God. Notice next the words of verse 42 then flow out of that repentant heart and posture for these words are acknowledging they're wandering from the right pathway when they say with Jeremiah in verse 42, we have transgressed and rebelled. The people of Jerusalem were going into exile because of their own sin. And they were still in exile, perhaps when they received this book. He's guiding them what to do when you're in exile. Boy, we've really done it now. God has demolished our city, demolished his own temple, has had us carried off by these pagan Babylonians, and we sit now in service of them. We've really done it. What you need is the book of Lamentations. What you need is the call from God through Jeremiah to say, right where you are, O exile, realize that it's for your sins and say to God, we have transgressed and rebelled, lifting hearts and hands to him. They're still under divine judgment for their sins and going to be for 70 years until the return from the exile. But when a confession of sin has been made, that God will instantly pardon. As John later writes to us, the Apostle John in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the next verse says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So uh, after our confession, God pardons. So here in verse 42, it's a move in a good direction for the people to say, we've transgressed and rebelled, we have sinned. Yes, we're with you, Jeremiah. However, verse 42, perhaps you've noticed, ends with a quite different statement, a statement that God has not forgiven. God's actions in the next verses show that God's wrath against them continues. How is that? They are returning to God as Jeremiah is coaching them in verse 40, but yet God's wrath continues. The problem is with their inability to turn to God sufficiently as if they could save themselves. Repentance is never sufficient. We can't repent well enough. We can't trust well enough. We can't save ourselves as if God just opens an avenue and it's up to us. We actually need him to come and rescue us. Because what's really the condition is having been carted away and sitting in a pit far away in the enemy territory. 
You can't search your own heart enough. You can't arrive at an accurate assessment on your own. You're going to need God to search your heart. In verse 43, sin has consequences, starting with the anger of God. You've wrapped yourself with anger, Jeremiah says to God, and you pursued us. This is what it means in verse 44, that when God is in anger, your prayers can't pass through. What does that mean? I thought God answers prayer. I thought he always answers prayer. What this is describing to us is no one can sweet-talk God. No one can boast saying, hey, God was really upset with me. I really pulled a fast one. But I turned on the charm. And now God and I have an understanding. No. Oh, no. It never works that way, God says, through his truth-telling prophet, Jeremiah. We can't break through God's anger by saying the right prayer at the right time in the right way to achieve our own salvation as if it's simply a vending machine. You put in the proper coins, out comes what you want. You put in these prayers and out comes a good relationship with God. It's not some kind of distant equation with God. Being saved is not our doing. It's not an equation. It's not a mechanism. Redemption is not achieved by us. It's not achieved by the right prayer, not a life that's cleaned up in certain ways. Our rescue is by grace alone, faith alone, from the God who alone is faithful to his covenant. Our faith itself is a gift from God. The same God who has wrapped himself in a cloud of anger, we're being told here in verse 43. What it means is that no prayers of sinners, no pleadings of the guilty, no crying out to God from remorseful rebels will be enough until God has himself definitively dealt with our sins, has given us the gift of faith and followed that up in his faithfulness with then forgiveness and mercy and grace and love where he has brought us to the point of true confession true repentance and trust in him alone that God's wrath continues to be expressed intensely until that time. Look at verse 45. You've made us scum and garbage among the peoples. What a reversal. You know who God's people used to be? This is what happens when you go down the wrong path because what God's people used to be is described in Psalm 48. His holy mountain Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the earth. That's who God's people used to be. And now what he says is, you've made us scum and garbage among the peoples. Demeaned so far that they're considered to be garbage. Special word only here in the Hebrew Bible to just throw it away. You're going through the garage, you say, keep or save. Oh, <laughs> throw it away, whatever the special. Oh, throw it away is how the world views God's people. Psalms verses 46 and 47 develop the idea of being viewed as garbage by showing how the enemies open their mouths wide against us in order to rail against us. Like you could go back and see Lamentations 2 verse 16. To rail against us. That's why they're opening their mouths. It's a constant barrage of words against us. The enemies spoke harmful words against the citizens of Jerusalem during the downfall. Can you imagine that nice things were said as they were carting them off to Babylon? No. It's the opposite things that were said as God's exiles were being carted off to Babylon. And it continues in the prison cells and service areas in Babylon. 
verse 47 summarizes. It was all brought by enemies, namely panic, pitfalls, destruction, devastation, all originating from, please don't forget, the wrath of God against their sins, which was designed to lead them to repentance. Verse 40 again, return to the Lord. So that moves us then to the next section, 48 to 50. What's left for the people to do but to grieve? Grieving and repenting with a river of tears. Verse 48, my eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction. Starting in verse 49 then, the prophet Jeremiah is responding to the cries of the people. Cries without ceasing. Verse 50, crying without respite until the Lord looks down and sees that the people are suffering at the hands of the enemies. Perhaps God would move to action by their tears of grief. Verse 51, he wrote, My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. Imagine what they did to the women. More grief, see, to reflect. Verse 52, Jeremiah and Jerusalem know what it is to be hunted, and they grieve too. Verse 53, Jeremiah and now the whole city of Jerusalem know what it is to be cast into a pit, to have stones thrown at them, and they grieve that too. Verse 53, the pit was often a metaphor for trouble, even at times suggesting death itself. They put me in the pit. They put me underground, six feet under, we might say, the grave. Sure enough, verse 54 adds water closing over my head. Well, if it's over your head, guess what? Your whole body is sunk in it. Drowning to death, which was a real possibility for Jeremiah, if you remember, in the water well. Jeremiah and Jerusalem know what it is to be flung alive into a pit or cistern to have water rise and rise until the water closes over their head and poetically it seems like the river of tears that fills the pit and accumulates the drowning, weeping prophet in a pit of his own tears. How do you get more poetic and more poignantly beautiful and painful at the same time? Jerusalem knows weeping like that. And it started with Jeremiah, who back in verse 1 said, I was the man who had seen affliction under the rod of God's God's wrath, and now that grief is shared by the whole city. Their grief is limitless. Their cheers just don't stop. What to do? We move to our third section, pleading for and hoping in God's rescue and protection, verses 55 to the end. Verse 55 gives the answer what to do. From the depths of the pit... Second half of verse 55, go back to the first half of 55. I called on your name, and he gives a covenant name of God, O Lord. Jehovah, Yahweh, the name of God. What to do? Call on the covenant name of God from your pit. Verse 56, God heard the plea. Verse 57, God came near with a message, do not fear, which is what all the angels from heaven say when they appear to human beings. Don't fear, don't fear, because the first thing you want to do is fear. Don't fear this pit. Don't fear this trouble. You have a mighty God. That God came near. The fact that God came near is developed in the next three verses. 58, God took up the cause of Jeremiah. Praise his name. He redeemed Jeremiah's life. Verse 59, God would hear the case of wrongdoing regarding Jeremiah. In verse 60, God would hear their plots against Jeremiah. Verse 61, God would hear their taunts of the enemy. That's the the enemy gloating and teasing you. Verse 62, God would become aware of the thoughts of those attacking assailants who were against Jeremiah. And in verse 63, God would see and behold the enemies when they're sitting, when they're rising, when they're aiming taunts at Jerusalem. He understands the whole scene. God sees it. And with that in mind, we turn to the last three verses. 
It's kind of strong. We don't like to pray this sort of way. But we haven't been attacked and destroyed and brought off into exile like the ancient citizens of Jerusalem, have we? So if you could imagine that, maybe these prayers come across you while you're sitting in a Babylonian prison and you can say amen, verse 64 to 66. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. And even ends with his covenant name. Now this is all too familiar to Jeremiah. Over in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 38, Jeremiah himself experienced plots against his life. Jeremiah called on the Lord to act against his personal enemies when his life was in danger. And Jeremiah's sorrow was an example that's now followed by all of Jerusalem to join him in the pit, to join him in the sorrow, to join him in the grief, to join him in rivers of tears that pray to God are turning into true repentance, that the people need to turn to the Lord. And when they would do so in exile, Jeremiah was confident, so confident that he could say to them in our passage, God's forgiveness, God's nearness, God's reassurances to you. Who says that to somebody in a Babylonian prison? One who understands the word of God and what he has said will come to pass. He's a covenant-keeping God. Great is thy faithfulness, he has told us in this very chapter. That's how the church is like Jerusalem in exile. We need to keep returning to the Lord in tears and repentance and faith. We need to keep examining our ways. We need to figure out how far we've gone from him. And then we need to come to him in tears of repentance and trust and receive his forgiveness. The chapter then ends with a cry from Jeremiah and the cry from Jerusalem to be defended by God against such enemies. What enemies? We have enemies. The enemy of despair, the enemy of defeat, uh, the enemy of unbelief, uh, the enemy of all of my sins, the enemy of death, the enemy of hell, the enemy of uh, the devil himself, the enemy of the world, and my own flesh that would pull me down the wrong path every day if I'm not trusting God. We pray that the same God who grants mercy to us when we suffer will also carry out his curses against those who oppress his people. We live in the age of of one of the highest levels of persecution of Christians in the history of the world. We pray to God that he will protect his people. We rely on God for mercy and we rely on God for justice. So that's our study. How does it apply to us? Let's take a few minutes and seek to apply this uh, to ourselves. I've got three application points. Number one, ask God to help us examine our hearts. See that we're scum. And grieve rivers of tears. Verse 40, verse 45, and verse 48. Ask God to help us examine our hearts. See that we're scum. Grieve rivers of tears. Did the pastor just say that we're scum? Yeah, it's in the Bible. Let me back this up. So the view of ourselves as scum and garbage and worms comes from the sight of ourselves before the just and holy God. There's a second application that the world sees us that way, but first... We see ourselves this way. Our rivers of tears represent godly grief and true repentance and returning to God and confession of our sins and trust in Christ's redemption alone. Again, 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is not an antiseptic approach. When you're talking about sin, it's truly ugly. Who we are, what we do, what we think, The internal part of our mind and heart is scum. 
Genuine and sincere repentance shows itself in being consistent to understand how bad we are. The gospel says we're worse than we dared to think that we are, but God loves us despite that through Christ. His mercy. Mercy means you don't deserve it. It's sustained thought process like that. I am a worm, and God gave me mercy and grace. It's sustained changing living. The rivers of tears flow into profound changes, heart level, mind level, attitude level changes. Again, I'll read the next verse, 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The horrors of our own dark hearts, it's shocking if you'll let God hold the mirror up and you take a hard look at it. Consider Jeremiah's words from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, 9 to 10. Remember these? The heart, think your heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The next verse, I the Lord search the heart and test the mind. You let God search your heart. We should let God search our hearts with us. Right? The psalmist, King David, agreed. Psalm 139, 23, he prays for that. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. You see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Did I go down the wrong path here, Lord? God says, you know, uh, repeat after me. I am scum. <laughs> God says, repeat after me. I am garbage. God says, repeat after me. I am a worm and not a man. By the way, that's an exact quote from the Bible, King David, Psalm 22, 6. It's biblical. In fact, the Reformed faith is sometimes called worm theology. I am a worm. We often call it total depravity, but that's no fun. Call it worm theology. We know that God is working in our lives when we can admit this about ourselves. I am a worm. I crucified thee. 1 Corinthians 4.13. What do the apostles say? We have become and we are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This was stated by the apostles. It's how the world viewed them, but it's how they viewed themselves apart from Christ. Suffering apostles. We're seen as scum. It's true of us. The world hates us. But by faith we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus and we're safe in his kingdom, undeserving though it be. So that's our first application. Ask God to help us examine our hearts, see that we're scum, and grieve rivers of tears. Second application out of three, when our enemies throw us in a pit, we call out to God who's with us in disasters. Verse 55. Verse 55 says, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. Verse 56, you heard my plea. Verse 57, you came near when I called on you and said, do not fear. How does this apply to us? God is sovereign. So when our enemies uh, throw us in a pit, as it were, we know that God in his sovereign will has planned that suffering for us. So from that pit, we cry out to God. In other words, we learn from our suffering something about our walk with God. We see our Savior learning from his suffering and showing us how to do the same. Hebrews 5, 8. Although Jesus was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So our learning is not what saves us. Jesus saves us. 
He's the source of our rescue from the pit of sin and death. And then God teaches us to obey. Through what we suffer, we learn. Jeremiah in Lamentations 3 learned a deeper kind of obedience through what he suffered. Same for us. When we suffer, we call out to God and seek him as we learn a deeper kind of obedience. We ask Jesus to teach us. So point two of application was when our enemies throw us in a pit, we call to God who's with us in disasters. Third and last one, we celebrate that God has taken our cause and redeemed us and we leave it to God to repay our enemies. Third application, last one, we celebrate that God has taken up our cause and redeemed us, verse 58, and we leave it to God to repay our enemies, verse 64. It was no accident that the deliverance of God's people involved the suffering of one who stood in their place, representatively suffering the same things. Jeremiah went through it first, then the whole city. It's no accident. In fact, it's poignant. The suffering poet bore the griefs of the people, but since he's not the Messiah, next, the people bore their griefs. So, you see here how it's fitting that the weeping prophet was joined by the weeping people. And the weeping people were represented by the weeping prophet. But there's no redemption there. It's a pointer. It's a pointer to true redemption. And what we celebrate is that redemption truly came. We have a weeping savior. We have a suffering servant, as Isaiah says it. The treatment against the weeping Jeremiah and the treatment against the weeping Jerusalem were foreshadowing of the insults and cruelty later heaped upon our Savior himself. The wrongdoing was done by the people that Jesus came to save. The suffering of Jesus was deeply ironic, for it was Jesus who was revealing at that very same moment the depth of the compassion and mercy of God for us. Jesus took the wrath of God for God's people, showing us God's mercy. The same God reveals his wrath and his mercy in the New Testament. Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Why does God express his wrath since he's intent on restoring us? Two reasons. One, because we need to see the awfulness of our sin as God sees it. What is the big deal anyway? When you say that, you don't understand. We need to see it from God's perspective. It's so ruinous. And the second reason God expresses his anger since he's intent on restoring us is because we need to see our inability to overcome the obstacle of our own sin or achieve our own salvation. We can never clean ourselves up enough. Our salvation from our terrible sin condition, call it the pit, call it the cistern, call it exile, call it the sinful nature in this broken world, our salvation from our terrible sin condition must be by God's sovereign actions and grace. It is God who gives grace. It is God who gives mercy. It is he who's faithful to give the gift of faith by which we get two things. One, our sins cleansed. Two, Righteous standing with God by faith alone. We don't clean ourselves up with a little electricity and energy from God. We receive the gift, downloaded once and pasted on us all at once, the righteousness of God by faith. It's Habakkuk 2.4. It doesn't say that righteousness, the righteous will live by their righteousness. 
It does not say the righteous will live by their repentance. It says the righteous shall live by faith. And even our faith is itself a gift from God. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It, faith, is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray. Father, show us what to do with our tears.